so yeah, let's just get started. So hi, everyone. It's me, Nicholas. I hope you're doing well, and I want to welcome you to season two of Elitist Anthropology. I'm actually, you know, last season, I had all of the episodes planned out exactly in the order that I wanted to release them, and the way we recorded them was how they were going to be released. This season, because it's going to be a kind of mix of formats that we're going to do the podcasting in, I'm not actually sure in what order they're going to drop, and also because I recorded some episodes while I was doing some traveling that I need to go back and actually kind of edit, redo, just because things have changed, you know, the world is a living document. But all of that aside, this season is going to be a mix. It's going to be a mix of remote episodes. It's going to be a mix of live episodes. It's going to be a mix of field episodes. And you guys know that I'm actually pretty morally opposed to remote podcasting. Uh, but as fate would have it, you, what what's the saying? You die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Sometimes you have to make decisions about whether you want your project to continue with constraints or if you just want it to end. And I don't want to stop podcasting. I love podcasting. So we're doing a remote session today, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce the guest that we have. So this guest, if you're an OG Elitist Anthropology listener, you'll remember when I subbed this guest on episode one. So I was talking with Kira and I said, yes, I have this podcast. We started it. The name is Elitist Anthropology. And I invited one of my friends to come on it. And he said, I don't want to be a part of anything elitist. And I tried. <laughs> I was like, you just don't, you don't understand. You don't understand what we're doing here because it's an original idea. It's original. So it's not validated yet. You don't have a, a framework to really know what we're getting into. And he was like, yeah, go to hell. I'm not doing that. But as I say in business, no means no for now, not no forever. So you have to just keep grinding, keep hustling, keep getting on your Zoom, keep putting that shit on. And one day you might achieve the thing that you couldn't achieve before, like me bringing on this next guest to the podcast. So let me tell you about him. So uh, he's a photographer, a young photographer, very early in his career. Uh, but despite the earliness, he's had some really great successes he's extremely well published um you probably well i would say you probably you may not know his name but if you look at his images you've probably seen them before uh on a newsstand in a magazine you were reading maybe retweeted onto your tl he has gone viral quite a few times and like i said he's extremely well published he's also won quite a few awards which i have here listed in my notes um google image equity fellow forbes 30 under 30 Doritos Solid Black Changemaker, American Photography, AP38 selected winner. So, you know, the streets know about him. And I also know about him because before he did any of that, we were in the same ghetto-ass transitional housing at NYU together. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the pod, Eric Hart Jr. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. Shout out to the audience. Yeah. Shout out to, <laughs> shout out to the in-studio audience. Yo, thank you for the introduction. Of course. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing well. I'm nervous, but I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Do not be afraid. Okay. Work. <laughs> and not the shade. I feel like I, I completely missed that. I should have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My aunt, she's like super Christian. And so she always sends me like memes and stuff on Instagram. And one of them was like, 
there's one phrase re repeated 160 or 360 times in the Bible. It's do not be afraid. And so all summer, whenever people have been expressing uh, anxiousness, I've just been saying that to them just to see mm -hmm. what they'll see, how they'll respond. Uh, it's been fun. Anyway, so I told them a little bit about you. Why don't you tell them a little bit about you, Eric? What should the people know about you? Um. Okay, so my name is Eric Hart Jr. I am 23. I was born and raised in Macon, Georgia. Um, lived in New York for the past five years as I went to NYU with Nick. Um, yeah, and I'm a photographer. I feel like I dive into the world of Blackness, queerness. I feel like I really play with themes of freedom, themes of power, themes of performance. And I really create these highly stylized works. So I do a lot of black and white. I do a lot of post. I do a lot of editing. Like I just really enjoy stylizing my images to kind of craft mm. some type of narrative, some type of visual that really promotes black freedom, black liberation. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. That's amazing. But we're going to get into that later. But like, what about like you though? Do you have oh. a favorite color? <laughs> do you like Thai food? Um, do you okay. have a car? I don't stuff like that, you know. Um, me, I love <laughs> Japanese food. I love Chinese food. I'm a Sagittarius. If that means something to anyone, I'm not okay. too zodiacs. What's um, the sign? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> we up forever because of that. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm. I just be chilling. I'm cool. Okay. <laughs> All right. Chill and normal. We love that. And yeah. so where are you now? I'm in Connecticut currently. I just moved to Connecticut. You just moved to Connecticut. And what are you doing out there? I have a fellowship. It's called Next Haven. So I will be creating for the next 10 months in the studio, really learning about the fine art world. Okay. Very nice. We love fine art here on this podcast. I'm actually, in a later episode, going to have one of my old colleagues from the Guggenheim. So we live, we live for the fine art world. Um, so have you been to Connecticut before moving there? No, this is my first time. And what do you think of it so far? How long have you been there? I've been here, what is today? Saturday, about a week now. So mm -hmm. it's cool. Like, I really feel like everyone here is super kind. Like I was telling my roommate, mm -hmm. like, everything feels like a Sunday, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> like everything All is right. just like, relaxed people are enjoying themselves it's not too busy the weather's like moderate like it just feels like a very very relaxed place have you spent a lot of time in the northeast like outside of new york no not really yeah like connecticut massachusetts vermont maine mm -hmm. all that up there well well you're gonna have a great experience that's a very interesting uh interesting part of the country i would definitely say while you're in connecticut you should try to get to some of those other ones because they're like very random but they all kind of feel like that really okay. like you're inside like a hallmark movie or something literally that's what yeah. it gives yes like uh -huh. it gives very much like we got some extras but not a lot of extras you know <laughs> it feels like very yeah. much like the mix like yeah no more girls sleepy hollow yeah um, but that's interesting so you're living there and you said you have a roommate did you move there like together or did you get put together through your fellowship? We got put together through the fellowship. So he's also an, an artist. Mm. Do you have other people that you know living in that in that town or are doing that fellowship? Not really. Like I know like one individual <laughs> prior to mm. coming to 
etiquette, but that's about it. See, that's very interesting because that leads me to my next question. So this season, as I said earlier, it's a lot about moving, a lot about traveling. And so last season, we talked a lot about um, how do you get places in the place that you live? How do you get to where you're going when you're connected mm -hmm. and, and trying to get to other people? Um, but this season, I want to talk about how do you maintain relationships when you're far away? So like mm -hmm. when you're marooned, not marooned but when you're solo dolo <laughs> in connecticut how do you maintain the relationships with the people in new york with the people in georgia how do you do that what's your approach to that i mean i feel like for me well first and foremost new york ain't that far like i've already seen my best friend in new york once since i've been here like this past week i went to new york one day um so i don't feel like it'll be difficult to travel back but i also feel like i'm just the type of person who like keeps his friends really close and family really close. So if I'm having issues or if I'm having, I see a funny tweet or like it just anything like I'm texting them. Like they're the ones that I'm like constantly in communication with through mm. media, through text. So I don't know. Like it, it's kind of like a daily thing. Like even walking here, my friend texted me his like two outfits, like which one he, I, did I like better? Like we just kind of have those type of relationships. So no. Yeah. Very fascinating. And so you said you're from Macon, Georgia, originally, correct? Yes. Okay. Can you just explain to me the vibe? <laughs> Can you explain to me the vibe? The vibe of Macon, Georgia? Yeah. It's very Southern. Like, it's very Southern. It gives me, like... Okay, what does that mean, church? though? Like, like, like <laughs> it's giving church. <laughs> giving dirt roads it's giving small city it's very much like okay. which if you the the what you think of the south mm -hmm. in terms of like landscape in terms of the way it feels the way people speak the southern hospitality the food mm -hmm. people like making georgia is like the epitome of that mm, okay mm. and did you enjoy growing up there i did i feel like as a child being there, I kind of mm -hmm. longed for more just because I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me or people who felt the way I did. Like I was probably one of the only out kids in my high school. Yep. But in hindsight, like once I found that, I was able to look back and be like, oh no, like Macon was really a beautiful place to build a foundation as a human, just as a solid individual, yeah. someone who has manners, someone who treats people with respect, someone who is it's a good human. Like I feel like making kind of in my family specifically in like Southern upbringing, that kind of world, they just yeah. teach you to just be kind, you know? So I really do so feel true. like a lot of my friends and a lot of the people I've even connected with at NYU or in New York have been mostly from the South because I feel like there's this certain thing that comes with the South in terms of just the way you present yourself to the world and the way you treat people. I would absolutely 100% have to agree. So what role do you think that your experience in Megan plays now in your work, if it does at all? It definitely plays a role. Um, I feel like a lot of finding myself was hindered because of where I was in terms mm -hmm. of just not having mentors who, like I said, love like me, look like me, or into the same things that I'm into. So I feel like a lot of me growing up in Macon was being taught how I'm supposed to be opposed to nurturing who I am. Um, yes. so I feel like a lot of the work I'm creating now is like a reversal of that and kind of like con confronting that and really like 
holding on to my love of how I was raised, but also meshing myself into that world. So like combining yeah. two things. Wow. I can see that. <laughs> I can really see that. You know, I'm in the South <laughs> as well. And I definitely agree with like, you find you, when I moved to New York, it was something that I didn't realize that I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I really only, <laughs> I really only want to be around people that call, I, I noticed this of all my friends that say like, yes, yes, ma'am. And no, ma'am, like, yes, sir. And mm-hmm. no, sir. Like, yeah. I didn't realize how much that actually was like a part of my dialect and how when people don't do it, I find it very off-putting. Same. Like, really. is... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say like in, there was, it was my freshman year mm-hmm. and I had this professor who was, was still pretty cool. But every time I would answer her, I would say like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And she's like, you don't have to say that. You don't have to say that. And like, I would find myself struggling not to say it yeah. because like, I'm like this, like it literally is so ingrained that it's like difficult to not say yes, ma'am. I feel like I'm disrespecting you. Yes. I had a, my, like, it was like the summer after freshman year, I had an on-campus job and the guy who ran the center, he was like, you know, 50 something. And at that point I'm like 18, like, I'm not about to call you by your first name. It's just not something that I would do. What is your last name? Johnson. Okay, your name is Mr. Johnson. So we would be in the office and I'd be like, excuse me, Mr. Johnson. And he'd be like, you can just call me Blake. Like, it's not that deep. And I was like, something about that just doesn't feel right. Every time I say it, I feel like my mom is about to yell at me. Like, I would just prefer, it would just make me more comfortable to address you in a more formal way. Also, I need to remind you, I feel like people uh, really kind of, uh, not demonized, but they think negatively about s- having rigid social systems or rigid um, systems of identification just in general. But I feel in the workplace, having that makes it, at least for me, has always made it easier to establish boundaries. So mm. it's like, when I call you by your last name, or I call you by your title, I'm really reinforcing the idea that we are not friends and we do not know each other. We are here in a professional context. There are rules that need to be followed. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna watch what I say and I do, and you need to do the same because it's nothing to pick up the phone and call HR. Don't call me by my name. You do not know me, but that's just, you know, Southern upbringing, you know? <laughs> do you like, <laughs> anyway so let's talk about photography so over time you've developed a pretty distinct style i would say i feel like when i see your pictures even if i see them on tumblr i see them on twitter or something and they're not associated with you i can recognize them pretty easily uh without giving away any of your trade secrets can you maybe just talk about how you developed that style and I will first maybe describe it. How would you describe your photography style and then go into how you developed it? What are some of the things that went into you deciding like, this is going to be my thing. That's going to be my thing, et cetera, so forth and so on. Um, It's really wild. Like, I feel like even like the other day, I found some of my earliest photos that I took on my iPod and I started mm-hmm. shooting like in my grandma's house like in the living room in my room i would like set up these towels and stuff but it's still like you could see the early footprints Mm -hmm. of what i'm doing now like it's still black and white it's still dramatic and stylized um so i just find it like a very i don't know i feel like i'm 
just in a place now as an artist where I'm like, you've always been attached to this certain style. So it's like cool that to see it like grow. Mm-hmm. But I would say that style is um definitely black and white. It's definitely highly contrasted, highly stylized. I feel like I really enjoy making a viewer look within shadows. I feel like mm-hmm. that practice is poetic. So for me, I do like the darkest of blacks. I do like mm-hmm. to utilize whites to kind of create this contrast on camera. Um, yeah. But overall, like from a theme standpoint, I feel like it's very much powerful. Like I feel like I am photographing subjects who feel powerful, look powerful, have a stance about them. I'm typically shooting at a lower angle to make them look taller. Like I just feel like I'm drawn to strong individuals and like seeking that kind of strength within myself has definitely been a practice with my camera. So I feel like that's kind of what I do (laughs) as a photographer. And I think one thing that's really interesting about your work is the way that you block or the way that you um, arrange people in the camera. My favorite of your images are always the ones that have multiple figures in them. Is mm-hmm. there something that you are, is, do you have an established approach to the way that you arrange people on camera or is it something that you just do in the moment? It's definitely an in the moment thing. I feel like for me, like in terms of my practice, I'm creating mood boards, I'm creating the concept but in terms of like the shot list, that's non-existent. In terms, like I know really? things I want to try, but I'm not walking in saying, "Okay, we need to do this, 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 and this." Like for me, there's a certain level of collaboration that happens when you allow models to do just do things. Like for me, I really enjoy going to a space and just say, "Like just move around a bit," or just like kind of watch how people interact when the camera's not on them and see what they naturally do, and then incorporate yeah. that into what you're doing. Because I feel like I don't know. For me, if you allow people to just do the things that they naturally do, they'll be more comfortable. And I really want people to exude that confidence, that power. So comfort is top priority, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You guys have to tell you a story. So one time, this was pretty, I feel like Eric and I had maybe met like a few times. It's very early on and us knowing each other. He's like, Nick, I'm going to do a shoot. I need all these black guys for the shoot. Will you come? (laughs) (laughs) So at the time, I thought it was, I didn't know him that well. So I thought it was a bit of a strange request. He actually does this every, every, every week. He's looking for some black people. Uh, And so he was like, yeah, come to the, come to the uh, cyclorama on Intesh, whatever, and wear black. So I was like, okay, I don't really know what was going on. So I wear black. I had recently bought a Muji sweater. It was a ribbed black Muji sweater. They don't make them anymore, which is a shame because I only bought two. I should have bought five. And I get there and it was like, it was all these guys. And they were all like dressed, like I thought we were wearing black, like in a, in just like a stagehand way, but they were wearing black, like in a Rock Nation brunch way. So I was like, oh my God. I was like, I'm I'm so underdressed. I'm so underdressed. And so we're like, we're doing the shoot, but I'm as we're doing it, I'm really feeling like, like I really need to not be in these images. It looks so weird that everybody here is is dressed up so nicely and I'm literally wearing a crew neck. Um, yeah. But Eric did not say anything about it. He was like, okay, exactly like that. He was like, okay, y'all stand over there. Everybody turn, everybody turn a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> Just do you, be powerful. If you want to wear a crew neck, wear a crew neck. <laughs> uh it was a great 
day. It was a great day. So um, that's awesome. You're a really great photographer. I think definitely you can really see the style. I have your book actually right here, your monograph, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I have Not this is. <laughs> yes, I still have Rip Me Out the Plastic. I've been that brand new. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still have mine in the plastic because I'm waiting for us to be in the same city so you can sign it. Word. But I don't want it to get damaged before <laughs> it gets signed because once it gets signed, I'm gonna like spray it with like hairspray so that it, you know, it maintains its integrity. But I've yes. never heard what if like what do you, you Okay, so oh the plastic is tearing. I didn't mean to rip it out the plastic now. Um if you spray like writing like a chalkboard or any type of writing with hairspray, it keeps it in place and it kind of adds like a protective layering. And I actually learned this at the Warner Brothers studio because at the studio where they shoot, where they shot, um, or the soundstage where they shot Friends, the mm -hmm. Central Perk Cafe, the board is the same from the last time that they shot there in 2001 oh. or two, whatever. And there's like a person who works there and part of their job is to go and spray it with hairspray every day or a couple times a day to make sure that it stays in place. That's amazing, actually. Hopefully that wasn't a lie that the tour guide made up because that has been my strategy for this. <laughs> so I hope, will, I hope it will work out. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about your career. Okay. So you're pretty young in your career, I would say that you definitely have had a abnormal trajectory uh, for someone coming out of university. Can you talk to me about how you approach the business of photography? For sure. I mean, I'm learning constantly. Like, I feel like I am young. I am doing this for the first time, as we all are. So I feel like I lean a lot on my mentors and I lean a lot on people who know what to do because <laughs> obviously I mm. don't all the time, you know? So for me, it's a matter of reaching out to people who know more than I do. So I'm constantly texting my mentors and constantly asking people who studied at Stern or like people who just, uh... <laughs> you know, people who just have a different skill set than I do in order to continue tra my trajectory and leveling up and, you know, prospering as a photographer. And I make mistakes and I'm not like the best at everything, but you know, you figure mm -hmm. it out. What has been the biggest mistake that you've made? The biggest mistake that I have made. Mm -hmm. I feel like mm, when eyes have been on me, like specific eyes that I know were looking at my work, people, clients, art buyers who I wanted to work with. I yeah. did think that I thought that they wanted me to do opposed mm -hmm. to doing what I should have like what feels natural and i feel like when you do something as an artist that isn't you or isn't if you're doing something for strategy it always shows at least for me i don't know like mm. at, when my heart isn't in it it doesn't feel authentic and i've definitely been in a position where i knew i know for a fact someone's watching someone's like checking me out like i'm in the conversation and i do what i feel like they want me to do and it didn't turn out as well so it's like okay well maybe he's not the one so mm. uh, from that point forward, I'm like, nigga, just, oh, just do what you want to do. <laughs> just do what you want to do. Like, don't, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is so true, though. That is definitely so, so true. Um, Have you had any big wins that you thought, like, oh, my gosh, like, 
I'm not gonna lie. I really hit that hoe from a from a business perspective. Business perspective. Absolutely. I have a, a few. Like I feel like there have been a few different times within my career where I'm like, I would have never imagined this. How did this come about? Like this is mm-hmm. big beyond me. And that's how you know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's how you know you're walking in your purpose, your calling, because certain things just align that you just could have never put together. So yeah, for sure. There have been multiple times. Could you say one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, For sure. I I feel like one is definitely getting into NYU full scholarship. Like I feel like that's one of those things. I got my full scholarship working at a golf course and I don't even play golf. So it's like my friend, my, this is so random. Okay. My friend was dating this dude that walked at a, that worked at the golf course. I photographed him one day and was just telling him how I didn't like my job. And he's like, well, apply to this golf course, apply to the golf course, got the job, worked there for about a year. And then just happened to find out that they do this full scholarship program, apply. They do And it's literally one person per year. It's like a round of like three interviews applied, got that scholarship. But it's like how rent, there's so many variables that had to be in place for that to happen. Mm. So I'm like, I feel like that's, that was the first time I ever felt like, wow, like some something beyond me is working. Also when I graduated and um, last May, mm-hmm. the Rito Solid Black program, that came out of mm. nowhere. Like it was completely random email, like, hey, we would like for you for this program. And I'm like, in this certain moment, I'm like sh- struggling. Like, what am I going to do after I graduate? What's my next move? And just so happens, you know, Frito-Lay was looking at the boys page, <laughs> you know? So shout out to them. Well, all right. Shout out to them. We love Ruffles. So I want to talk about your monograph. Okay. Like I said, uh, I just discussed it. Your monograph, it recently came out. I have a lot of questions about this. Um, as you know, I'm a bibliophile. I love books. I love to read. I love coffee table books. I'd be on that fade on website. Like it's my job. Yeah. So I'm just extremely interested. So the first question that I want to ask before we get into all the business questions that I have for you, actually, we can just, I just want to know, you know, what was this experience like for you? Did you enjoy it? Did it change things for you or change anything about the way that you approach photography, um, having your works be collected in this fashion as opposed to an exhibition? Absolutely. So the experience was very enlightening. The experience was very much a growing process. Like as an mm. artist, when you think about creating a work that people are going to carry around and have forever, like potentially, it's like, how do you put your best foot forward and create the best that you can possibly do? And it's like, for me, wanting to make sure that things translate, wanting to make sure that my sequencing makes sense, wanting to make sure that my book feels like a book and it feels like a complete thought. I feel like all of that just really pushed me as a photographer. I had to write a lot. I got into the habit of mm. writing about my work, making sure that I can defend anything and any in any image within the book. Um, so that's really heavily a part of my process now in practice, just writing about what I'm thinking and what an image means to me and what symbols mean and doing the research. Yeah. Also like figuring out this may mean this thing to me, but 
because of the historical context of this, it can mean something completely different. So you have to do the research about what you're putting in your images as well. So yeah. that also shifted my practice as a photographer before when I think about power, I don't think I really did that. But like now I'm like very much like, okay, if they're wearing a nail, what, what is the style of nail? What's the history of this? What type of car is this? What, you know, like just really being intentional about everything that's within the frame. We love an anthropological approach. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even say the title. So this is called When I Think About Power and it's available where? Everywhere where books are sold. You can Everywhere where books are time. sold. Perfect. Yeah. Is there a preferred place that people should purchase um, it? I guess I'm mean, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, one of the three. Or anywhere else, literally anywhere. I don't, I'm not trying to literally create anywhere. Okay. Very, <laughs> very okay. exciting. And yeah, I could definitely, I definitely saw that process as you were, as you were going through the process of writing and composing the book, because we would talk and you'd be like, yeah, I'm working on this essay. And I would be like, all right, well, that sounds good. I felt like that. Uh, have you ever seen those memes where it's like my friend who's not in my industry just it's cheering on everything that I say. It's like, yeah, that sounds amazing. It definitely, I think that photo game changer for sure. No, that is not you. <laughs> not you. I would send you stuff and you would be like, at least the written stuff. And you would be like, no, that's not what it gave at all. Like you would be like, no, like that was I didn't get that from what like what I would say, you'd be like, no. <laughs> well, I have to be honest. <laughs> but you know. We love being supportive. So uh, now I want to ask you a little bit more technical question. So did you go on submission with this book or were you approached by the publisher? Submission. It was a submission process. So I emailed all these different publishers. Mm -hmm. So you you wanted to create this book. What was the impetus for you thinking, I want to do a monograph and I want to do it now? Um. So basically this series started as my senior thesis. Um, mm -hmm. But I took a senior thesis class my junior year as well because I had an extra um credit that I could do um so I just had so many images so because I've been working on the thing for about two you know two semesters um and I'm like you if you just continue going you'll have like a huge body of work you might as well turn it into a book or something so yeah it was just kind of a matter of I just have a lot of images like I really would like to make this into a complete thought and complete project yeah. Okay. And so when it comes to a monograph, can you talk to me a little bit about how the licensing for the images works? So most of them, or I would assume many of them were complete before you went on submission from for the book. So do you retain ownership of the images? Do they transfer to the publisher? Is it some sort of like time-based thing or, you know, based on like where the book is sold, et cetera? Can you just talk about that? Yeah, so I retain the copyright, the license, like all that. I own all the images. It's just a matter of like a time stamp in which they can't be put in another book. Okay. Yeah. And so when you go into, once you're done querying and you start having publishers approach you about wanting to purchase the book, was it a, like, was it just that there was one that was the clear fit? It was the right one. We wanted to go. We, this was the publisher that we wanted. We went and we got it. Um, or did you have a process that you went through as far as selecting publishers? And what was that process like? I mean, honestly, I would just look at photo books that I liked and like really was like, I want my photo book to feel like this. I wanted to have this quality, this type of mm -hmm. final product and just would reach out to those publishers. And then from that point, 
I reached out, you know, like multiple publishers. So many people didn't get back. Some there were a few no's, but there were like two yeses. And like out of the two, it was like, no, this from jump though, like you when you sometimes when you know, you know, like I just knew like because we, so we sat down, we had a conversation, it was like, this is gonna be it. They're gonna say yes, and my book's gonna be out. Like I, I just I feel it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about a few, maybe it was, I can't even remember when it was, let me not try, but you went to Italy to meet with the publisher. Can you just tell, recount the story of that trip as though you were telling a friend your favorite memory? What happened? What was the factory like? What were the things that you saw? What were the things that you did? Um, And after going and seeing the facilities, how did that again affect what you thought about your book and the way that it was coming together? Um, so yeah, I, at that point, the book was done. I had submitted it like two or three months prior, but it was just now going to press. And it was like one of those moments in life where you're like, bro, like, what is life right now? Like you went Italy looking at your book being printed, you know, like, I don't know, like, that was just really <laughs> like, I don't know, like, it just really feels empowering. It feels like you can really do anything. Like, Mm -hmm. it really was one of those moments in life that I feel like I'm going to cherish forever because it really was. That's like a dream come true. That's like one of those things that just that's not average, you know, and like I went I was able to go with one of my close friends from making Georgia. So it was like. We just out here from making Georgia in Bologna, Italy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's, like, that's so random. Like that's so mm-hmm. random. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the feeling of seeing my work printed. It really was such an easy process. Like they got the print down perfectly. Like it wasn't too many going back. There was one image we had to go back and like do some tweaking to, and it was like that one was difficult. But they just knew the print. They just got it. Basically, they just got it. Did so that you, also. Um... Did you work with the publisher on the actual design of the book, or was that something that you did and then passed over to them? It was some like I, I, because my book was so it's so minimal. Um, I kind of just had it already, but there were a few design elements that they recommended, and I was like, sure. Like the black scene that connects all the pages, they were like, we should make that black. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then as far as the entire process, are you going through this process alone? Do you work with a manager? Do you have a lawyer with you while you do this? Do you have some sort of, or do you have an agent with you while you do this? What is the team that goes into making something like this happen? For sure. So there are a lot of like unofficial team members, meaning like I'm sending it to mentors. I'm sending it to people who study law. I'm sending it to people who have photo books, you know, like, Mm -hmm. So I'm just getting their advice and making sure that everything's okay. I mainly like my mentor, one of my previous professors who's worked with this specific publisher. She mm-hmm. was kind of like my go-to source for like, am I getting played? Is this like the right, like, you know, just like making yeah. sure that it's good. And it really was like, it was really an easy process. And I'm thankful that I have people who are willing to take the time to just make sure that everything is solid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, very, very cool. Well, as we said, when I think about power is available now, everywhere books are sold. So definitely go get a copy. Um, I don't think Eric can sign yours, but he is going to sign mine. But you can still like it without the signature <laughs> anyway. Um, so kind of the last question that I have about photography is that I want to talk about, so after this, now you're doing your fellowship. Okay. 
what are you thinking about your career going forward? And specifically, are you thinking, which I mean, maybe the answer is you're thinking you want to go more into the fine art path. Are you thinking that you want to do more branded work? Um, do you want to be a hired, more of a hired gun, a freelance, you know, creative director? Or is your idea that you want to be doing your own works and sort of taking jobs as they come in order to continue to fund that? What do you think about your career as it goes forward? Uh, I feel like I'm in a very transitional period where I'm thinking about that a lot and trying to figure that out. But I feel like my goal has been the same since I started in terms of my end goal. And what I, feel like I want to be a photographer, an artist, a creative who has the leverage to create whatever he wants in terms of your talent has allowed you the ability to put out what you want to put out into the world. So like mm -hmm. I look at like Oprah or like Spike Lee or even like Tyler Perry, like people who are so much like I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it to the place where they become their own bosses and they become their own leader in a space where they can put out whatever it is they want because they've built up an audience. They built up mm -hmm. a, a, a a certain yes. Like it's a certain, it's a, how do I, how do I verbalize this? It's like, they don't, it's not, you're not taking a business. If someone is in collaboration with them, they're not having to take a chance because they've proven yeah. I want to be one of those artists. And I feel like with that kind of security as, a, as an artist, creative security, I feel like you get to create what you want to create. So like, I want to be one of those one of those photographers who expands and do, does film, who writes, who, mm. maybe, I don't know, like whatever I want to do creatively, I want to be able to do that. I want to have creative freedom to do whatever I want. So I just feel like whether that's fine art, whether it's editorial, whether that's all of it, like I feel like I do have the skill set to expand outside of just one thing. So why not do yeah. that? Okay. Okay. And recently you tweeted something, you were like, I always do interviews and they ask me what my influences are and then never publish them. So <laughs> close friends, yeah. <laughs> I'm what can I say? I'm I'm I take my journalistic research very seriously here on the pod. So, you know, now's your chance. Who are your influences? What and in, who are the people that inspire you to take photos that you think about when you're composing images? What are the references? Absolutely. I'm actually influenced by like a lot of different types of art and artists. So like in terms of the world of photography, mm -hmm. Tyler Mitchell, Dana Scruggs, Gordon Parks, um, Nadia Lee Cohen. Uh, I love like I really do love a lot of people. Campbell Addy is one of my favorites. Um, uh, but shout even, out to them. Shout out to them. I can Zanelli Mahole. Oh, my God. So Dude. good. But also like I'm really inspired by like the way people will craft a project if that makes sense so some of my favorite people are like john waters or beyonce or marlon riggs like i look at their works not in terms of the art medium itself but the way that they craft a project what their mm. approach is how they can are able to create worlds that no one else can create like i feel like i'm really trying to be one of those artists who's very much creating his own, own world and it's like that's an eric Hardy. Whether it's written, whether it's photo, whether it's motion, like all of that. Yeah. So I love those people. And then also Gerard Queens. I love RuPaul. I love Simone. <laughs> I love, yes. but like when you think about the art of drag and like really creating your world, like uh -huh. I think drag queens are the best at doing that. You have to have a 
persona, you have to have a certain style, you have to look a certain way to portray a message to an audience. And I feel like drag queens don't get their credit as inspirations, but like mm. I'm really inspired by a drag queen that has a full flesh persona because you thought about every single detail. So yeah. Yeah. Shout out to yeah. them. Very interesting. Shout out to them. I definitely agree. Like when you see artists that are able to really take you somewhere mm -hmm. it's like a really powerful thing and it's not really something that can happen by accident and i feel as a, as and I, I would imagine you feel this way too like as people who have to go from creative projects from this does not exist to taking it all the way to the end in all of the technical financial like just everything that you have to set up in order to make one image happen or to make one shoot occur you think about wow like not only did you have to think of this idea did you have to fully flesh it out but then you also had to organize all of the correct um you know pieces of the puzzle and everything that can go wrong and all of the people that are going to fuck up in the process and still end up with the miraculous result and so whether it's something that's like super super detailed super super expansive um like like a film or like a film series or something like that or even something that's pretty minimal like one music video one song or one photo the fact that it can still have that effect is really amazing but it's yeah. interesting that you bring up uh, drag queens and just in general, your visual inspirations. I want to talk a little bit about your style. So okay. I've had many people on the pod and I always like to ask them about their style because I feel like I just know a lot of people with very unique senses of, of dress and also very different from my own. I feel like I dress, not that the way that I dress is so particularly amazing, but I think that it's like very different from some of my friends if we put together the fit slides it would it does not look like a matching set so can you tell me just when you wake up in the morning we'll do two things when you wake up in the morning on a regular day like you're not really going anywhere you're just you know kind of going about your business how do you put together your casual you know outfits and then let's say that you're the next day you're going to a concert you're going to an event you know you're going to be on the scene how do you go about putting together an outfit that you're like okay i'm gonna be seen and photographed in this mm. i mean my casual day-to-day -day is not too much thought <laughs> like it's like does this match let's go because <laughs> it's very much like <laughs> okay i'm learning though like if i fill my closet and one of my friends like the friend that i went to italy with Mm -hmm. he's very deep into fashion so he's been helping me like if i ever need to look good uh -huh. but he's like if you just fill your closet with things that like you like that you feel like look nice even on casual day, look nice because you, you have only objects that look nice so i'm trying to be that person like i'm trying to be the person that has a closet just full of things that i enjoy even if it's mm -hmm. the casual so kind of now i'm like anything that looks nice but's also comfortable that's my casual look but if I'm going to be seen, like, if I know, like, okay, this is for a photo shoot or if I got to be seen, then I'm, like, trying. Like, I'm really, like, let me get these nails done. Let me get this haircut. Let me get mm -hmm. this skirt. <laughs> like, I'm just really trying to show <laughs> Let me pull out my kilt. You literally, listen, give okay. them, make it a moment. <laughs> okay, okay. And do you have, like favorite places to shop? Do you have particular colors that you gravitate towards? Do you approach it with some kind of um, perspective or theory? Um, so love Dover Street Market, was introduced to that last year and I'm like, ooh, this place mm -hmm. is amazing. Um, 
I like Uniqlo a lot. <laughs> like it just gives you like very nice basics. Shout out to Japan. Um, yeah, I really feel like I dress in like a very uniformed way. Like when I'm like really getting mm-hmm. dressed, it's very much yeah. like a skirt, some nice top, and then a dope ass hat. Like I feel like that's my uniform. You love hats. Now we need to talk about that. <laughs> Because if it's one thing, you're going to put that fucking hat on. Can you tell me about how, what is the style of hat called? You do know the one that I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. The Russian cuff. <laughs> Boom. Yes. What, <laughs> what is that? Where did it come from? And how did it end up as a part of your life? So basically those hats are by a designer named Rodney Patterson. He has a dope shop called Essential on East 4th Street in New York. Um, but those hats are really popular. Like the first person who I saw wear it consistently was Antoine Sargent. Mm-hmm. And from that, like from him wearing them, I saw a lot of people start to wear them, but I don't know. It's just something about the way it extends the head. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have like, I don't know how to describe it. The, the It just makes you just look, it's like a little crown on your head, like the way it's mm-hmm. created. Um, but I'm trying not to wear them as much because everybody be wearing them now. Um, but yeah, I love them. I really do love hats. And it's weird because as a child, I hated them. I hated anything on my head. Yeah, my dad would always try to get me to wear hats because he does. But now I'm like, I'm him, basically. They're just more stylized. It's weird. Yeah, you're wearing a hat right now. What can you tell us about this fit that you've got on right now? This fit, um, so this is a church girl hat, is a reference to Beyonce. It was given to me as a gift, actually. Um that's a nice gift. Yeah, I have on a jean blazer, not blazer, this is a vest. See, I'm not a fashion kid. Um, (laughs) I think this was from like that thrift shop. What is it called? Metropolis? Something like that. Okay. I think it's a Uniqlo shirt, some khakis. All right, then. Comfort, yeah. (laughs) Very cool, very cool. Uh, So now let's talk about music. So, uh, the first thing I just, you know, it's all about doing anthropology. So I want to get a written or not a written, what is this? Like a, a recorded document, fresh, fresh from the press. What was the Renaissance tour like? Oh my God. It was so good. It was literally like a spiritual, like I keep telling like anyone who asked, it felt like I was at church. Like it really felt like I was allowed to like release <laughs> if that makes sense like i thought she really put her time and effort into make creating a space where you can just have fun to dance to just allow yourself to move and i feel like you don't mm-hmm. I, I mean concerts do that but like it was a very clear point like you enjoy yourself tonight so and i mean of course vocally visually the stage product like everything she's just she's beyonce so what was your favorite song on the set list lift off because i just did not expect it i like people have been posting clips from the entire show and i, I know i'm not the person that's gonna watch the whole thing on like somebody's live but yeah from the clips i've seen it's a lot of the like bigger moments like the mm-hmm. the everybody on mute the um america has a problem like the stuff you expect yeah. but lift off for me has been like a very like I hold that song close to me because it's very much manifestation. It's very much like a goal. Like I want to do all I can do. And so when she started singing that little part of, I was like, wait, wait, because no one posted this. I did not know. <laughs> I was excited about that. 
Okay, very cool. And just in general, what kind of music are you into? I feel like everyone says this, but I'm really the type of person I can listen to anything. Like, I feel like <laughs> I really everyone am, but I that. don't. Everyone does. The only thing that I'm not into is like heavy metal screamo. Like, it's too loud. It's not mm -hmm. for me, but I love rap. I love R&B, hip hop. I love country. I love pop. I can listen to alternative, like all the things. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, to be a little bit more specific, what are some, like, if you had to describe to someone your taste, mm. start giving them albums to reference your taste, what are some of the albums that you would say, or even some of the songs, even? Ooh, okay, albums, songs. <sighs> the Emancipation of Mimi by Mariah Carey might be my favorite album of all time. Mm. Definitely Renaissance. Um, Aquimini by Outkast. Mm. Anything by Lotto. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, but I also feel like I have that other side. Like, I love Alanis Morissette. Like, love really? Alanis, Love Janis Joplin. Love Miley Cyrus. My, Miley Cyrus, I will, like, go to bat for Miley Cyrus, like, musically. Ugh. What was your favorite song on uh, Endless Summer Vacation? It switches. So sometimes it's jaded, but mm -hmm. sometimes it's violent chemistry. I love violent chemistry. I think that's just like it's like a perfect song and i i i know sia is like a controversial figure now but she's gonna push her pen and she's gonna she's gonna push that pen it's so good she's a writer she's a writer <laughs> do you have a favorite miley cyrus song like just in general in her whole catalog favorite miley cyrus song oh that's difficult certain ones <laughs> come to mind I'm gonna give you like Mount Everest. I'm gonna give you a few. Okay. Okay. I feel like get it right. Mm. Bangers. Yeah. Um, one in a million, Hannah Montana. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of those, actually. One of those two. Yeah. Okay. For sure. yeah. okay. That's definitely the deep cuts. Deep cuts. Listen, she got some hits. Yeah, and I've also recently been listening to a lot of like Broadway Broadway soundtracks, so like musicals. Oh, really? Do you have a yeah, favorite musical? To that campy world, um, Hairspray, easily. That's also one of my favorite albums. The Hairspray soundtrack, mm, the movie yeah. or the or the show, the movie, the Zac Efron one. Oh yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> good morning, Baltimore. When I was on tour, when we drove into Baltimore, I was like, somebody play it, somebody, somebody <laughs> play it. We need to hear that right now. Yeah, I like Miley Cyrus too. I think my favorite Miley Cyrus song is probably either, I love the climb, I love the climb. Of course, I have, I love pop songs that could also be gospel songs, and it's he does that a lot too. If we're being honest, yeah, 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 and like I, that's on my playlist called I think I call it like low key gospel, and Ooh. it's on <laughs> on there. And I feel like one day I just want to take over somebody's mega church like on Easter and just. <laughs> A concert of all the low-key gospel songs because no it'd be crazy it would be so good so i have a, um, a playlist okay. called hood ministry and it's all <laughs> rap songs and like okay. songs that could be like it's like ultra light beam and like take it to church by chloe like all of those songs yeah you know chloe her album i really i it just it needed time it needed time to to hit when i first heard it i was kind of like mm, midiana but lately I've been listening to it and I'm like, wow, this is actually kind of great. 
Never thought she gave me, always thought it was good. I feel like it's just one of those albums that gets better and better and better, but I never thought it was bad. I always feel like Chloe, I, I will say this about Chloe. I like to see full things from her. Like I went to her show and I was like, mm-hmm. this is a really good, she puts together projects well. She puts together full things well. Mm. If yeah. that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. So when you woke up this morning, what was the song that you were like, oh, turn my shit on? Um, I don't think I listen to music this morning, which is rare. I usually make a playlist for the day. But if I'm like, what am I listening to at this moment? You make a um, playlist for the whole day? Typically. Like if I know I'm going to be like walking or creating or something, I don't mm-hmm. create a whole playlist. Um, currently, right now, I'm listening to Joy, the Pharrell Williams song that he did with the Louis Vuitton show. Mm-hmm. And then still Molly's that new album, but also Lotto. Like she just dropped a like- You know, that's, of- we, I can't believe I almost glazed over that when we have a subject matter expert here on the pod. Can you explain the vibe of Lotto? Can you help us understand Lotto as an artist? Because I'm not gonna lie for, when she when she not when she first came out i guess that was like on the rap game right that's many years ago but when she first started to emerge as a um serious contender uh as a uh you know a steady axe in mainstream hip-hop and her Mm. name was mulatto Mm. i was like you know i'm just not into this and this was also during the clubhouse era and so a huge not a huge i don't know if it was huge but quite a (laughs) <laughs> bro I'm, I'm a historian so back in the clubhouse era days it was i guess maybe she had had like her first it was before um bitch from the south came out but i i don't know some song she had was doing well and they were like oh should she call herself mulatto should she not call herself mulatto and i was thinking well you know it's it's kind of like whatever like people can call themselves what they want to call like if that's her name that's her name now is it wild is it wild crazy Sure. Yes. It would be like somebody calling themselves the Negro. Like it's, I mean, I guess it's okay, but it's insane. Um, But you know, who knows? All right. So I guess the PR team, the legal team, they tapped in and they were like, all right, like just your, your career is really going somewhere. Let's not have this be a problem. All right. They all tapped in, changed it to Lotto. Since then she has been on a uh upward upward trajectory had some big hits done some good tours and from what i see like i've listened to her music a couple of times and i'm like you know this is good this is i'm the real ass doing that bitch from the south like okay like i see the vision and um but you've always been a lotto truther and so i just would like to know from your perspective what makes lotto an interesting artist what is it about her work that captivates you um, and why is she important to what's happening in hip hop today? I have so many thoughts and I'm so happy you brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel so strong that Lotto has a package that we just have yet to see from a rap girly post Nikki. Like I really do feel like not I'm not gonna say post Nikki because Nikki's still since we've had this new slew of rap girls, I do feel like Lotto has the best package and she's always exuded that. Like, I feel like Lotto lyrically can hold her own. Like, she's really an MC. Like, she really be spitting. But she also has the ability to create a big energy, like create a, a top charter hit. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you think about how impactful Atlanta and the South is to rap mm-hmm. and to think about 
how we don't have too many females coming out of Atlanta who really have that type of rank. Like mm. you have the New York girlies, you got the girlies from Florida, but it's like, who, who is the Atlanta girl? It's Lotto. And I feel like I really like appreciate and admire how Southern she is and the way that she speaks. And when she raps about sugar and, or salt and pepper and her grits, when she talk about, her coochie being like syrup, like I don't know, like it's just like it's very southern, like it's so mm. southern. And then when she speaks to her influences, like she grew up listening to Gucci Mane or UGK or Outkast, I can hear that. And I feel like as someone who grew up listening to his dad's southern rap, I just feel like she carries that torch so well. She has the looks, she has has the flow she has the presence she's a nice human like i don't know like i really will always go up for lotto because i really do feel like she has what it takes to be one of those icons years from now all right and that's that on that. <laughs> um when you're doing a photo shoot how do you put together a playlist it depends it's dependent on what i'm shooting so like uh, like i said a lot of things are stylized so mm -hmm. if i'm wanting something that's dramatic and it's very in your face then the music is also that if i'm mm -hmm. creating something that's fun and it's very playful then the music is also that but if i'm also just wanting to create a vibe like where it's we're just taking some beautiful images i want you to feel luxurious very comfortable very chill then that's what the playlist is giving mm. is there something that makes a song a perfect song to shoot to typically if everybody knows it <laughs> Really? <laughs> like I just feel like that, that plays into comfort like people trust if you can set a vibe like you can set a tone that people like I feel like people trust mm -hmm. you more and I feel like that's part of the thing as a photographer like you your subject has to trust you in order to get the best results so yeah profound so the last thing I want to talk about is books so as you said, when I think about power is available now, but you've been on a reading journey. I think you're trying to read like a hundred books or 150, some 50. What is the number? Yeah, well, last year I wanted to read 50 books for the okay. year. I did, but I'm still reading, yeah. but it's not a set, set number this year. Okay. Awesome. Um, what inspired you to do that? I realized I hadn't read a book in a long time. <laughs> like <laughs> I really just was like, used to like when i was a kid I, I never really watched tv like i'm not that person so in my room i would always read like as a kid i would reconsider like that was my pastime whatever yeah. as i got older that became social media that became listening to music that became thinking about photography so books just kind of like you know got left behind yeah. so i'm like where what happened like why have you not nourished that and i feel like that also helps me with writing since i like to write and want to be a writer you know yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what struck that. Okay. And so what is your favorite book? Ooh, what is my favorite book? That's a very difficult question. I feel like the books I've had the strongest reactions to, yeah. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Okay. Um, All About Love by Bell Hooks. I know everybody say that. Um, <laughs> Um, You're like, I hate being basic. My favorite book is all about <laughs> <laughs> um, Black Magic by Chad Sanders. Mm -hmm. And let me see, but any more? I'll go with those three. Those three have very been very 
visceral like reactions like books that i actually go back to and re read some of the highlighted parts and just think about and write about really? response what about them is so visceral i feel like it's different for each one so all boys aren't blue it's just a matter of being seen being heard feeling like you your experience is like i think a lot of times we can convince ourselves that our experience is so like ours and it's so niche and no one has ever been through what we've been through yeah but i feel like that book does a lot for black queer individuals who probably mm -hmm. come from upper class middle class like there's certain experiences he talks about mm -hmm. that it just resonates like it's like i've been through this in this exact same spot and no one talks about it and you never hear about it so for me it's just a matter of being seen and feeling like you good like and and, and just reminding you that uh, your deepest self can create art as well like the things that you feel like no one else has been through that no one else can relate to someone can you know um all about love I don't know. It just gave me a different perspective on love, like for real. Like it really, <laughs> like I, I really feel like that's what everybody's saying. That's what uh -huh. that's what Twitter hype. But it's true. Like you read that book and you just look at the world. Like y'all do not love me. Like <laughs> I need a shift. And I literally, like after reading that book, took initiative and like time to like shift some things within my world, like family people just like no like you have to show up for me in this way and this is how i think about love so yeah. and then the last one um black magic by chad sanders i feel like that book is just really like a guide into like black excellence black leaders black creators so for me i think that's like one of those books that i can go back to for inspiration and any time i'm like what do i do or what is the route to take or why do I feel like this? Like, yeah. it's basically all these conversations from Black leaders, Black people who are considered excellent. Um, so yeah, I just like the inspiration that it gave me. Okay, that's amazing. Well, we've come to the end of our time here. So I have to ask you the iconic last question. Eric, where do you want to be in five years? In five years, where do I want to be? Ooh, mm -hmm. I just click my thing. Five years, I'll be... 28 mm -hmm. um approaching my 30s i feel like in five years i i need uh, i'm not gonna say need god's timing divine timing i feel like in five years i would like to be an established artist who is truly creating from a place of freedom like creating from a place mm -hmm. of financial freedom from a place of creative freedom where i can if I want to write a script, if I want to do a musical, if I want to do a movie, if I want to develop an app, I don't know, something random. <laughs> yeah. I've proven that I have the talent, the wits, the mindset to deliver and that any business, any collaborator, any other artist, anybody will invest, will follow, appreciate and back what it is that I want to create. And also that I'm just in a place mentally and physically where I'm actually so happy and so proud of the work I'm doing and so comfortable with who I am. Like, I feel like for me, yeah. like just growing, the growing pains, coming of age, mm -hmm. you know, like you have those moments of like, who am I? <laughs> you know, like I really just want to be at a place by the time I'm approaching 30 where it's no questions, where I'm very much comfortable walking into any room being myself comfortable defending any part of myself and comfortable 
allowing every part of myself to be seen. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the pod today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like every time we talk, I get to know you better and you teach me something new. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And don't forget, you guys, to like, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, Elitist Anthropology. Uh, you can purchase When I Think About Power anywhere that books are sold. And you can find Eric on, he's a photographer, so I would say find him on Instagram at, what's your Instagram handle? At Eric Hart Jr., H-A-R-T. Eric Hart Jr. All right. Thanks, everyone. Ciao, ciao.